Good morning. For those of you who didn't make the explanation at the beginning of the service, we've had some technical difficulties this morning, and everybody is doing a fantastic job of rolling with them. Uh, so thank you to everybody who has kind of scrambled to get speakers up and uh, get, the, get the music uh, people set up the way they need to be. And I'll try to I'll try to follow that. But I killed two mics last week. <laughs> I killed a handheld wireless mic. I killed a mic pack that hooks on my belt, and now I've got a wired mic that I am definitely 100% going to trip over at some point. So have your uh, have your camera ready if you want to have this on America's Funniest Home Videos. If you've got a Bible with you, let's go to the book of Titus, Titus chapter 2. If you do not have a Bible with you, there are Bibles that are in the chair racks, and Titus chapter 2 is on page 998 of those Bibles. We want everyone to be able to follow along. A lot of the scripture passages will be on the screen behind me, but we want you to be able to follow along if need be in, in one of those Bibles. And, of course, we have people with us each week who aren't familiar with the Bible, and we want you to know that that's okay. Everybody has to start somewhere. Uh, nobody here started with an automatic familiarity with where things are in the Bible. And so if this is a first for you, uh, it's on page 998, and we are just glad that you are here and able to follow along with us today. I want to start this morning by asking you... A question. When you look in the mirror, are you becoming the person that you want to be? When you look in the mirror, you feel like you are becoming the person that you want to be. I am not talking about your physical appearance. A lot of times we look in the mirror hoping that magically all the ice cream we ate the night before will have had zero impact on us, only to find out that yes, we do look the same today as we did yesterday. I'm not talking about whether you bulked up in muscle I'm not talking about whether you are reaching the goals that you have for your life, the skills that you might be trying to build. I'm not talking about maybe the, the financial goals that you've laid out for yourself, that place that you'd like to be in life. I'm not talking about any of those things. The question I'm asking is, are you becoming the person that you want to be. And I'm not sure how different personalities are going to answer that question. So it's hard for me to anticipate what the various responses that you might be feeling right now. Some of us are not very self-reflective. We're not internally aware of what's going on inside of us. We don't do a lot of navel-gazing. And so that thought has never occurred to you. 
Some of us are incredibly introspective. And so when you look at yourself in the mirror, you see a lot of wrong. Some of us have been Christians for a long time. And so we would have thought, I've been walking with Jesus for many, maybe 20 years now, 30 years now. And I thought maybe I'd be further along today than I actually am. And I actually don't feel like I'm becoming the person that I thought I would be or want to be. Life comes at you fast. We have a life track that's set out for us. And then things blow up. And there are probably people who are here today in this room who something has, is in the process of blowing up. And nobody here knows about it but you. And you're looking in the mirror. And not only do you, you feel like you're not becoming the person, but you feel like you're actually taking steps backwards. I don't know where you're at, and I think it probably varies by your circumstances and your personality type. For me, when I look in the mirror, it's, I can often only see the wrong. I can't see what Jesus is doing, I cannot see who I am in him. The only things that the mirror shows me is what I'm not. And I think as Christians who are trying to follow Jesus, we often find ourselves stubbornly resistant to change. We are more selfish than we realized. More greedy than we realize. More envious than we had hoped. More filled with just a cocktail of lusts. Oftentimes when we look in the mirror, we're just not becoming the kinds of people that we thought we were going to be or that we hoped to be. And then we're faced with the choice, what are we going to do? And a lot of times what our choice comes down to is, well, we just need to buckle down and try harder. And if you've heard me preach for any length of time, then you know that there is a place for effort in the Christian life. Okay, we do not become Christ-like through mere passivity. But we often take the just-say-no approach to the Christian life. Don't do the things that you shouldn't do, and do the things that you should do as if it were that simple. But as you look at yourself in the mirror and you see that reflection, and not just your physical reflection, but the moral reflection shining back at you of what you aren't and what you have not yet become, it can be easy to get frustrated that we are not now what we want to be. 
If you are, if you are a true Christian, if, if God has done a work of grace in your heart, then somewhere in there, there is a longing for a change into Christ-likeness. I'm envious, but I hate it. I'm greedy, but I hate it. I'm filled with lust, but I hate it. As we started asking the question, what is going to motivate us to continue to pursue change when change seems to be moving in our lives at a glacial pace? One of the answers to that is given to us in Titus chapter 2, verses 11 to 15. I want to read the first four, the, the, uh, verse 11 to 14 with you this morning as we pick up where we left off last week. Titus chapter 2, verse 11, the word of God says this. For the grace of God has appeared, bringing salvation for all people training us to renounce ungodliness and worldly passions and to live self-controlled, upright, and godly lives in the present age, waiting for our blessed hope, the appearing of the glory of our great God and Savior Jesus Christ, who gave himself for us to redeem us from all lawlessness and to purify for himself a people for his own possession who are zealous for good works. Last week I suggested that this passage of Scripture teaches this truth. The good news of God's grace trains us to live the good life. That's what we're calling the life of, God work, of good works that the book of Titus is calling us to. And this, this passage teaches us that the good news, that's the gospel of God's grace is the thing that trains us to live the good life. It trains us to pursue moral transformation, to become everything that we are intended to become in Christ. And I use that word train because the Bible uses it here. It is, it is God's grace that trains us to pursue righteousness. It trains us in two ways. We saw last week that grace trains us to live faithfully in the present. And it does so by training us to renounce an old way of living and to embrace a new way of living. And it teaches us to do this not by leveraging the tools of fear or guilt. I said last week, if you were here, that, that leveraging tools like fear or guilt to produce change in our lives, to produce the kind of behavior that we want to pursue, that has short-term gains and does long-term damage. You, in certain instances, can put the wrong kind of fuel in your car, and your car will run on that wrong kind of fuel, and it will get you somewhere at the cost of your engine. And that's what we often do, to, to try to wire ourselves to do the right thing. We leverage tools like fear and guilt and shame. And those 
end up doing long-term damage to us because we cannot live in a continual state of guilt and fear and shame, nor does Jesus intend for you to. Being trained by grace, being motivated by grace is not the magic answer, is it? I don't know about you, but if you're like me, you still say yes to what you should say no to. And you still say no to what you should say yes to. We find ourselves stubbornly resistant to deep change. There are, are sins that are easy to say no to. It is easy for me to say no to not stealing cars. In fact, I am 100% righteous on that. <laughs> because I have never stolen a car. And it's very easy for me to not steal cars. But it's much harder to not be filled with grief. It's much harder to not be self-righteous. It's much harder to rid myself of some of these kind of ingrained patterns of sin that need deep reformation in my heart. Those are the kinds of things where we find ourselves stubbornly resistant to change. Which is why grace not only trains us to live faithfully in the present, but in the second place, and what I want us to spend a little bit of time thinking about today, is that grace also, according to our text, trains us to wait patiently for the future. Grace trains us to wait patiently for the future. I don't know if you noticed this when we read this passage of Scripture together last week or this week, but there are two appearings in this passage. Did you notice that there were two appearings in the passage? You might, if you're the kind of person that circles things in your Bible or underlines things or marks things up in your app, you might, you might mark those things down. We looked at the first appearing last week in verse 11 where the Bible says that the grace of God has appeared, bringing salvation to all people. And, and what is the grace of God that has appeared that brings salvation to all people? It is none, none other than the appearance of the second per person of the Trinity, Jesus Christ, Son of God, to take on human flesh and provide the sacrifice for our sins. But our passage also invites us to look forward to a second appearing, a future experience of Jesus. Verse 13 tells us that we wait this other appearing, the appearing of the glory of our great God and Savior, Jesus Christ. At his first appearing, he comes as a lamb. In his second appearing, he comes as a lion. At his first appearing, he comes in humility. He's born 
to people without means. He is literally birthed in a humble place. He is laid in a manger and he lives a life of humility in which people look down on him, reject him, eventually beat on him and spit on him. He comes in humility to lay down his life for sinners like me and sinners like you. That's what happens in his first appearing. But his second appearing is different from his first appearing in that his second appearing is an appearing of his glory. Notice what our text says again. Waiting for our blessed hope, the appearing of the glory of our great God and Savior Jesus Christ. And let me just point out to you briefly as we walk by a, a note about the deity, the full divinity of Jesus. Our Savior, our text tells us, is God himself. This second appearing is often referred to as his second advent or his second coming and this second coming is going to be very different from his first coming, as I said, because it is going to be a display of glory. And let me just tell you how Jesus himself describes it. He says this in Matthew chapter 24, verses 29 and 30. Immediately after the tribulation of those days, the sun will be darkened and the moon will not give its light and the stars will fall from heaven and the powers of the heavens will be shaken. Then will appear in heaven the sign of the Son of Man, and then all the tribes of the earth will mourn, and they will see the Son of Man coming on the clouds of heaven with power and great glory. Amen. Well, now that sounds a little terrifying, doesn't it? And it actually will be for some. You see, the Bible tells us that at this Coming, there is going to be a separation that Jesus does between what the Bible refers to as the sheep and the goats. Those who have accepted Christ are his sheep, and those who have rejected him are described as the goats. And in Matthew chapter 25 and verse 41, there are some who are going to hear these words, Depart from me, you cursed into the eternal fire prepared for the devil and his angels. It's important that we have a full picture of Jesus. We're often working with partial versions of him. And through Jesus' own description, this is the fate of all those who reject the grace of God in his first appearing. So there's an appeal here. There is an appeal to you right here and right now to repent and believe the good news of the gospel. Jesus came to this earth to save sinners. So we beg you this morning, if you have made your way here for one reason or another, maybe somebody has invited you here 
Maybe you've just driven by and thought, I ought to go to church, and here we are, you picked us out of a hat. I don't know how it is that you got here today, but it may be that God brought you here today to give you this message of hope. All of us are sinners, and all of us stand condemned unless somebody steps in and rescues us. And that is what Jesus Christ has done in the gospel. And if you feel the weight of your sin and the burden of your sin and everything that you have done this morning and everything that you are not, and you feel crushed by that weight, good. You need to feel crushed by that weight because that crushing weight needs to make you run to Jesus. We promise you through the word of God that if you will put your faith in him, he will wipe your slate clean and give you new life. Because he is God and Savior. For those of us who have put their faith in Jesus, his second coming is described to us here in our text as a blessed hope. Why is it a blessed hope? Well, because the Savior who is coming for us in this display of power and glory that's described in kind of like melt the universe kind of display of power, this, this, this imagery that's given for us, this Savior who is coming for us is the Savior who gave himself for us. And Jesus gave himself as a sacrifice on the cross for two purposes that are mentioned here in our text. We're going to spend a lot more time in the second one because we've already covered the first one last week. But first, Jesus gave himself to save us. Jesus gave himself to save us. The, 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 our text says uh, in verse 12, uh, or verse 13, waiting for our blessed hope, the appearing of the glory of our great God and Savior, Jesus Christ, who gave himself, gave himself for what? To redeem us from all lawlessness and to purify for himself a people for his own possession who are zealous for good works. Okay, that's what, when, when the Bible says here that Jesus gave himself to redeem us from all lawlessness, it's telling that he gave himself to save us. The Bible speaks of humanity as being enslaved by sin. And we're enslaved by sin in a couple of different ways. We are, first of all, enslaved by our own sin. In fact, the Bible refers to humans apart from Christ. It refers to humanity as under the slavery of sin, which means we just can't get away from it. It is our master. But we are not only slaves because of the sin committed by us, but we are also in slavery to the sins committed against us. You cannot walk through this world and not feel hit by the shrapnel of other people's sin. You have walked into this room this morning wounded by things that other people have done, whether directly to you or their actions have indirectly affected you and have broken you. So this is the kind of slavery to sin that the Bible talks about. And one of the ways the Bible describes our salvation is through this 
picture of redemption or the payment of a ransom. There's a sense in which we are held hostage by sin, and the work of Jesus Christ pays the ransom that frees us from being hostages to it. So Jesus, our Savior, God our Savior, gave himself for us, and he gave himself, first of all, to save us, but the thing that we want to think a little bit more about this morning is that he also gave himself to sanctify us. And if you're here this morning and you don't know what that word means, the word sanctify simply means make holy. One of the things that the Bible tells us is that God's intention in saving us is also to purify us, as our text says, to make us holy, or to talk about the way the Bible describes it in other places, to conform us, mold us, into the image of Christ. And so one of the purposes of Jesus giving himself on the cross, bleeding out, was to save you, but also to sanctify you, to purify for himself a people for his own possession who are zealous for good works. So here's something that I want you to think when you look in the mirror... And as you see your moral reflection back to you and all the things that you aren't, and as you see all of the failures, and you see all of the deep-seated, uh, rooted patterns of sin that you just can't seem to fully shake, as you look in that mirror, I want you to consider this truth, that Jesus is personally committed to your transformation. Think about that. Imagine Jesus in the mirror behind you, assuring you of that. In fact, Jesus is more committed to your moral transformation than you are. Sometimes a lot more committed to, than you are. <laughs> Certainly than I am. But I want you to, what I'm trying to get you to see is that we often see the cross as something that is one-dimensional. It's, it's, it's where Jesus showed his commitment to save us and to free us from the penalty of our sins. What I'm trying to get you to see is that the, the work of Christ and the cross and his giving of himself, his commitment to you extends far beyond that initial act. Jesus is absolutely committed to making you holy, and that ought, to, that ought to be a balm to your soul. Because sometimes it feels like maybe he's kind of hung us out to dry. Like maybe I'm alone out here. But no, the Bible says that he gave himself to redeem us from all lawlessness, from all lawlessness, and to purify for himself a people for his own possession who are zealous for good works. The same grace that brought about your salvation is the grace that's going to bring about your transformation. Now when the, the Apostle Paul, remember this is a letter, we call it the book of Titus, but the book of Titus is a letter of personal correspondence from the Apostle Paul to one of his one of the people that he had mentored in ministry, uh, a man by the name of Titus, is on the island of Crete and is trying to help all, out all these new Christian communities getting thriving churches set up. When P the Apostle Paul writes this, 
and uses this language, he is drawing from a deep Old Testament well where on numerous occasions God speaks of his people as his treasured possession. There are numerous occurrences in the Old Testament where God describes his relationship with his people. He says, those people are my treasured possession. I'm just going to give you one example from Deuteronomy chapter 7 and verse 6. But in Deuteronomy chapter 7 and verse 6, he says, For you are a people holy to the Lord your God. Okay, this is talking about being sanctified, talking about being made holy. It says, You are a people holy to the Lord your God. The Lord your God has chosen you to be a people for his treasured possession out of all the peoples who are on the face of the earth. And God goes on to tell them that he has not chosen them because there was something special about them. God wasn't looking out over humanity and saying, let me find the people who are just knocking it out of the park for me right now. Those are the ones. No, God says, it's not because you were the most in number or because you were the greatest in any way, but because I chose to set my love upon you. And he's Interestingly, in this passage in Deuteronomy, he's urging them to, to resist idolatry by assuring them that, he, that they are his prized possession. He's saying, don't turn to these idols for satisfaction. Don't turn to these false gods. Re- leave those things. Follow hard after me because you are my treasured possession and I love you. Now let me just, let me just, uh, I'm all discombobulated this morning on my time and what I'm doing here. Let me just make a little aside uh, on this. And this might not hit all of you, uh, but it might hit some of you, and I, and I think it might be helpful. In Deuteronomy chapter 7, so God's saying, God's saying, I didn't choose you because there was something special about you. Uh, I didn't make you my treasured possession because you're wonderful people and you're the best. He says, I did it because I chose to set my love on you. And I think we, we weaken the love aspect of that by the fact that God chose to love. And we walk out of that saying, we're lousy and God just made this choice to love us when we don't deserve it. And there's still nothing lovable about us. And I just want to say, let's let's elevate the love in that passage again. God chose to love his people. And he does. In fact, he loves his people so much by his free sovereign choice that he calls us his prized possession. Do you have a prized possession? So when you're looking in that mirror and you're seeing the lack of moral transformation and you're thinking, failed again, everything I'm not, One of the things that you need to say back to that mirror in that is, no, wait a minute. 
Jesus is absolutely committed to my transformation. And I am his prized possession. And you might say, well, I can't say that. That would be proud. Okay. You can choose not to believe the Bible. But that's the truth. You can dismiss that as being proud, or you can accept that you are deeply loved. We are Jesus' prized possession. And he is going to see to it that we are purified, that we are made whole, that we are made new. And our text is telling us that this is going to be fully and finally accomplished at his appearing. See, the reason we're looking forward to his appearing is that it is going to finalize something in us that we've been longing for. Because when he appears, we are no longer going to be looking in the mirror anymore and longing for change. When he appears, we are going to be changed. Now, our text doesn't say that, but that is a Bible idea. The Bible tells us that the appearing of Jesus' glory is going to be transformational. The Bible says it like this in 1 John chapter 3 and verse 2. Beloved, we are God's children now. Okay? So stop there. Beloved, we are God's children now. When you are looking at yourself in the mirror and you are frustrated with the lack of progress that you have made, you are frustrated by the fact that you're still greedy and selfish and whatever it is that are your besetting sins, when you look in that mirror and you see that, it tends to fill our hearts with doubt. Well, maybe I'm not. But if you have put your faith in Jesus Christ, then your salvation is secure, not through your performance, not how fast you're growing, not how you're overcoming things, Although, when God's grace is alive in us, we do grow. But our security is not in any of those things. When we look in the mirror and we see failure, we need to remember, but I'm God's child now. Even in the midst of all this failure, nothing makes me not God's child. Okay, here's the next encouraging thing. I'm God's child now, and what we will be, what I will be, has not yet appeared. Okay, so the Bible recognizes that we are living in the in-between. We are living in between the first advent and the second advent, the coming in humility and the coming in glory. And we're kind of stretched between that, and we've received a taste of new life, and we do feel and see spiritual growth in each other, and yet there's something that's incomplete there, something that's making us longing for more, longing for change, wishing it was faster, wishing it was more complete. And what we will be has not yet appeared, is that word again, but we know that when he appears, we shall be like him. Wait a minute, what? 
When he appears, we shall be like him. Why? Because we'll see him like he is finally. I talked about it last week. I said that the problem is our affections. We have deep-rooted affections for the wrong things. We don't see Jesus clearly. We don't see him as he should. But when he appears in glory in a moment... In the blink of an eye, we are going to see him, and that change is going to be transformational. You're not, right now, what you will be. But let me tell you something. You are going to be glorious. And if you don't want to believe that, fine. You don't have to believe the Bible. But it's pretty clearly stated. Jesus said he gave himself on the cross not only to redeem us from lawlessness, but to purify his prized possessions. So we are not yet what we will be. And you are not entirely you and I are not entirely free of worldly passions gives us hope as we await the appearing of the glory of our great God and Savior, Jesus Christ. And when that comes, when that day comes, you will be everything you are intended in Christ to be. So, let me end this way. If grace, this grace that we receive in Christ, is training us to wait patiently for the future, then I want to suggest two ways that that ought to recalibrate us in the present. First, this ought to recalibrate our hope. I wonder if this transformative appearing of Jesus maybe doesn't strike us as, as, as exciting as it ought to. And I'm wondering that because I was, as I've been thinking about it, I've, I've been thinking, I don't know if it's striking me really the way it ought to. Because I, I can only see what's right in front of me. So I'm not thinking about that very often. And I, I want to suggest just one reason is that maybe we're too comfortable. Maybe we're just not that concerned. So let me see if I can spark a little bit of the concern in you. So that you really apply to your heart what we've been talking about today. I want you to think about a pattern of, of thinking, speaking, or acting that is repulsive to you about yourself. Maybe something that people don't know about, something that you've tried and tried to kick, and just, it's not going away. 
but it's repulsive to you. That's the way all of our sin should be. Greediness isn't usually too repulsive to us. In our culture, it's celebrated. As long as you humble brag about it. But think of that sin area that's repulsive to you. And how hard you've tried. And how not very down the field you've progressed. And then you think, wouldn't it be great to see Jesus and to finally be free of this burden? That's the kind of thing that recalibrates that hope and says, wait a minute. Let's look forward to Jesus coming back to fix some of this. There's a second way, second thing here. Not only should this Recalibrate our hope, but it should recalibrate our expectations. I said, as Christians, we are a people who are stretched between the present and the future. And I see in this passage a wrestling with this tension. We have experienced the grace of God, and if you have come to Jesus in faith, you've been, been, you've been born again. You've been made new, and yet there's what the Bible refers to as the flesh that's still within us, our sinful nature, these attractions and desires for things that are not of God. And I just I want to say that in living in the in-between, we need to adjust our expectations a little bit for ourselves and maybe show a little grace to ourselves. I think a lot of the Christian life is like children learning to walk. And we have been so deeply formed by our culture, by our own sinful hearts, that we just need to understand that in that deep spiritual formation occurs over a lifetime. And so there, there are areas of your life where you are going to make progress really fast and praise God for that. And there are also areas of your life where it's going to be two steps forward, one step back. There's going to be circumstances that occur in your life that bring in new temptations where you're like, well, I didn't know I was tempted with that. Morally, we're like children who are learning to walk. And what do you do with a child who's learning to walk? Well, you don't look at a, at a child taking their first steps and say, that was great. You better be running by the end of the week. I already signed you up for flag football. <laughs> We celebrate steps. And so what we need to do is 
Train an eye in ourselves, but maybe even train an eye in encouraging others to see the steps of grace that are taking place in their lives. Because a lot of times we can't see it in ourselves. We need other people to say, hey, I know you're frustrated that you're, you're not what you want to be, but you're going to be that. And I can see God's grace active in you. I'll close this way. The last verse of chapter 2 gives instructions to Titus as he teaches this to the Cretan Christians. After saying all the things that he says about grace and about how grace is supposed to train us to say no to ungodliness and to embrace godliness and to wait patiently for the appearing of our God and Savior Jesus Christ, he says something interesting to Titus that I, I don't want to leave aside. He says in verse 15, Declare these things, exhort and rebuke with all authority, let no one disregard you. And that's a little strange, isn't it? Out of all the things that he said in, in this letter, he says, This message of grace that I want you to use to foster deeply formed Christians on Crete. Don't let anyone pull you off of this. And I'm convinced that Satan, who is a real person, wants to pull us off of grace. He wants to whisper in our ears, you're not what you should be. You're a fraud. You will never change. God is frustrated with you. God has given up on you. Soon everyone will know what a fraud you are. There are people who already do. This is what it is. I think like the mistakes and things even that have happened I'll just say this, this might sound weird. I, I feel like the distractions that we have, even with trying to pull things together this morning and the situation that we've had this morning, I think there's opposition to the word of God being preached. Because I don't think you're wanting to get this. God's grace will not be disregarded. So we preach it, and we exhort it, and we rebuke every message that's contrary to the message of Jesus Christ. Because it is grace that has brought you safe this far, and it is grace that's going to get you all the way home. Let's pray. Father, I pray somehow that you would use my feeble attempts to magnify the grace of God that can display to us in Jesus Christ. Lord, we are so prone to unbelief. So I pray that you would help the believers who are here this morning to lay hold of in their hearts the truth 
that in spite of their shortcomings and in spite of our failures, we are your prized possessions and you love us. And you are passionately committed to making the people that you love like Jesus. And so I pray that you would give us, as we pursue godliness, as we say no to wickedness, I pray that you would give us a future orientation to wait patiently for that transformation that is to come. And Lord, if there's somebody here this morning who does not know Christ, but does feel the crushing weight of their sin, would you please give them the grace to call out to you in faith and experience lasting forgiveness and the beginning of a long road of healing. I pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen.